Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get uh, we spend a lot of time on the podcast uh, talking about various, often crazy, proposals regarding internet regulations, uh, mostly in the U.S., but also elsewhere around the globe. We've talked about EU policies a bunch and also uh, policies in the U.K., but I don't think that we've ever had a detailed discussion on the podcast about our neighbors to the north in Canada. And now actually is the perfect time to do so. Uh, first off, they've called for a new election that will happen in just a few weeks. And for better or for worse, and actually mostly for worse, <laughs> uh, internet policy proposals have been up for discussion in Canada lately. Uh, and uh, there's an argument certainly that these days somehow... Uh, Almost every policy discussion somehow touches on the internet and is an internet policy, but uh, there were some very specific to the internet recently. There was a big push uh, call for Bill C-10, which was to regulate uh, social media companies like broadcast uh, television, and that would have been a disaster. Uh, and then more recently, there was a technical paper to deal with online harms that was expected to turn into legislation and the online harms approach is one that the UK has been working towards and we discussed uh, that on a previous podcast earlier this year. Uh, on top of that there was an effort to put in place some privacy regulations and there are always important questions about broadband access and competition. Uh, I of course am not Canadian uh, but my colleague Lee Beaton is Canadian and is in Canada and has been following all these issues so he's joining us on the podcast today uh, and then uh, we also have Matt Hatfield who is the campaign's director from Open Media, which I will loosely describe as Canada's version of EFF. Uh, so Lee and Matt, welcome to the program. Hi, good to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. So uh, there's a lot of different things to talk about, but Matt, let's uh, start by talking about the upcoming election. Obviously, there are lots of big headline dominating issues right now. Obviously, COVID is a big one and um Afghanistan, Canada is dealing with, with their own version of what we're dealing with down here. Uh, but uh, how important do you think the internet policy issues are in Canada right now? Well, I think the government has made it uh, a fairly important issue. Obviously, there's a lot of other important stuff going on. Um, but uh, the federal government has decided that they are going to make the internet safe for Canadians. They are going to uh, step in in a big way and, and do some world firsts. Uh, beyond what other governments have done in other democratic countries. And uh, that can be a dangerous thing. Um, it's leading to a lot of wild proposals that they, they don't seem to fully understand the consequences of. And so, while it's certainly not the only thing that Canadians should be thinking about this election, I, I do think they should be looking at what the other parties, well, all parties, are saying uh, they would do if they were in charge of regulating Canada's, Canada's internet, because it's really important that we are thoughtful about what kind of regulations we put in place here. And... You know, in in the U.S. at least, uh, we've sort of come to the conclusion that that both parties, because um, we 
just really have two here are absolutely terrible when it comes to internet regulations um you know there are there are terrible proposals coming from from both of those parties is is the situation in canada similar i am again like um i'm going to assume that our largely american audience may be uh, unfortunately somewhat ignorant about the state of canadian politics just like americans tend to be ignorant about the state of any other country's politics but just just to give some some background in terms of the the state of of Canada uh, and and you know how the different the different political parties there view internet regulations right now. Yeah, Canada tends to fall between uh, the U.S. and the EU on a lot of things on on policy on our general politics. Uh, in terms of our electorate, we're about a, a two thirds uh, left leaning country, um, but we do still have a, a Liberal Party and a Conservative Party, and. Um, I wouldn't say that it maps in exactly the way uh, policy does in the U.S., but there's definitely been, particularly around C10, we saw a growing trend uh, for the Conservative Party to position themselves as, as a defenders of freedom of expression and uh, for the Liberals uh, to be more uh, comfortable uh, saying that there needed to be more regulation of, of online uh, expression to deal with uh, issues like hate speech and incitement to violence and so on. And so... Um, so do we want to talk a little bit about C10, um, just so that people can understand kind of what that, that bill was, uh, you know, uh, we had written a post about it, but, but I'm not sure if anyone will remember that or be able to distinguish it from other stuff. So, so what was, or is C10? That's a good question. I would like to know whether the government <laughs> can answer that question at this point. Um, so in Canada, we, we have a history of, um, having some comfort with the government, uh, providing support for our cultural industries. There's a, there's a lot of fear uh, in Canada that our cultural would be overwhelmed by the U.S., and particularly in the broadcast era when, when radio and television had limited frequencies, um, there was a, a model in which, um, at the time, uh, the, the companies in Canada would, would buy content from the U.S. very cheaply and rebroadcast it here, and the fear was that, would, that was all they would do. Uh, and we wouldn't be producing Canadian culture and, and having Canadian creators actually succeed and, and replicate uh, Canadian culture. Obviously, that's important for English Canada, also very important for French Canada and supporting the French language. Um, and so we have a CanCon system in which money is taken from our broadcasting companies and given to uh, cultural industry producers. Um, that made a lot of sense for a certain number of years for broadcast, but Bill C-10 started as an awkward attempt to impose that system on the internet. Um, I'm sure you can think of a million reasons why that doesn't make sense. I mean, I think one of the most obvious ones is that the internet does not have unlimited channels, or limited channels, rather. So uh, people in Canada can choose to support and, uh, Canadian content and French language content if they want to, uh, or they can consume content from elsewhere. It's, it's really on us in a way that it wasn't in the broadcast era. Um, so we called Bill C-10 a bad idea from the start. Um, there was a lot of issues with it. It wasn't necessarily going to be available to internet creators. So it would be taking money from internet platforms, but primarily giving money back to traditional broadcast uh, creators in Canada. Um, that was the original mess with Bill C-10. Uh, unfortunately, during the amendment process when Bill C-10 was at committee, they uh, removed some exceptions that then made Bill C-10 apply to all online audiovisual content, including all of the user-generated content that any of us were producing uh, in Canada. Um, and that's when it really exploded into the public's consciousness as, as, oh my God, what's happening here? Why would the CRTC be regulating my audiovisual posts on the internet, which they would have been under that version of C10. 
yeah, it's probably worth sort of saying that, you know, it, it, to some degree, it grew out of a notion of the growth of streaming giants taking so much of the attention in the entertainment industry. So you could see a little bit of logic to that if the government wants to continue supporting Canadian content, saying, well, these new giants of media should be a part of that system as well. But as it sort of grew more from that and bigger and bigger, and you have the problem with vague definitions of what exactly counts for that kind of thing, and it all just sort of spiraled out of control, right? Totally. And open media doesn't, uh, we oppose Bill C-10, but we're not opposed to supporting uh, Canadian content production online. We just think that uh, if that's our focus, we need to be supporting uh, people who actually produce for the internet first with funds drawn from the internet. So uh, CanCon hasn't been updated in terms of its defini definition since the 1980s. Um, and we think it's time to start by fixing that, and then we can talk about what kind of content might be supported. Yeah, and there are questions around, you know, what exactly Canadian content means. It has been a complaint of many creators for a long time that, you know, the focus isn't just on supporting Canadian creatives, but supporting particular types of stories for them to tell and particular types of work for them to do. And so you get very muddy arguments where people talk about there not being enough Canadian content, even at times when the Canadian film and television industry is booming and doing really well and working on lots of projects and there's lots of great work for all sorts of people in that industry and the streaming giants have provided a lot of work in that industry. A whole lot of the big programs are, are made in Canada with lots of Canadian people working on them. So you get a lot of uh, confusion around the definitions there just because things aren't Canadian stories uh, doesn't necessarily mean they're not supporting the Canadian industry in a very good way. That's right. Netflix is actually one of the biggest uh, employers of people in, in, in creative industries in Canada. Um, and I, I don't want to bury your, your listeners in, in how CanCon works, but there's a point system in which you need to reach a certain point total to qualify as Canadian content. Uh, and there's all kinds of things where like very Canadian stories like Margaret Atwood's work around The Handmaid's Tale will not qualify as CanCon because it doesn't hmm. fit the point system. Whereas uh, stories that aren't set in Canada or about Canada, if they have the right number of points because of who's working on them in the back end, will qualify as CanCon. It's it's a, a very ugly system, frankly. Well, I, I, I'm actually interested. I don't think that's boring. I'm I'm kind of curious. How does this point system work? Because that, that just feels weird. But what, if you you don't have to go that deep, but but can you give a little bit more background on on how the points work? I think it is weird. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not a broadcast specialist, um, but it has to do with you'll get a certain number of points if, if the writers are Canadian, if the producers are Canadian, if a certain number of actors are Canadian, and so on. Uh, and so you need to make sure that you're, you're tallying up um, through the system to having the right, the right quotients. And so something very important, like, like you know, in the case of, of The Hemings Tale, having the, the, the writer be iconically Canadian, one of uh, the most famous celebrities in Canada, that's not enough to get you through the point system. You hmm. need to have all this back-end qualification as well. And then, of course, you know, all of this links into the issues of our broadcast regulator, the CRTC, and Matt, I'll let you speak to that more. But, you know, a lot of these decisions are left in their hands and same with a lot of the proposals in Bill C-10 and stuff. And, you know, then you enter into a lot of issues of regulatory capture and, uh, you know, a lack of transparency or of public input into those proceedings and those decisions. Matt, I don't know if you have more you sort of want to say about that, because I think giving people some context there is helpful because it connects to a lot of the issues issues we're going to talk about today, I think. Yeah, so the CRTC is sort of Canada's equivalent of the FCC. Um, it has a somewhat broader mandate, um, given our historical comfort with, with uh, having them involved in cultural issues. Um, but it, it, 
people are very frustrated with the CRTC. Um, there is a widespread feeling uh, that they're very slow to act on anything. And when they do, they seem to prioritize the needs of major Canadian industries quite a bit higher than they prioritize the needs of ordinary people in Canada. Um, on the telecom side, um, there's been a string of recent decisions that they've taken that have essentially entrenched the oligopolistic telecom structure we have in Canada. Um, they uh, are, are doubling down on a strategy for producing more competition that I, I think they know won't work. Certainly, we would argue and most experts would argue there's no way that it will work. Um, and even though the Competition Bureau in Canada has concluded that our telecoms are uh, collecting monopoly profits off Canadians, um, they don't seem to see that as something that is important for them to change. Uh, so it's knowing that, knowing how slow they've been to produce meaningful decisions on a lot of other pieces, it's a little surprising to us that the Canadian government thought the CRTC was an appropriate or well-positioned agency to take on this enormous expansion in their mandate uh, proposed under C-10 to be, you know, regulating and looking at millions and millions of pieces of audiovisual content that are put up by users all the time. It doesn't seem realistic to me, but uh, it, it was something the Canadian government thought was a, an election winning promise, at least, I guess. And um, I mean, so one of the things that you mentioned sort of at the beginning, you're not even sure that, the, that uh, you know, the government could describe C10 accurately, um, and Lee, I know in in the pieces that you wrote for us about C10, you know, one of the issues was that, um, you know, the, the the sort of main backer of C10 didn't have very clear answers when when confronted about how it would impact social media, and there was some denial as to whether or not it would impact social media. Um, do you want to discuss, Lee? You can start, and then Matt, you can follow up. You know, sort of how that has gone where where it's a little unclear as to how the bill will actually work. Yeah, it's very difficult because it's it's beyond just not giving totally clear answers. I mean, some of the uh, examples of our heritage minister trying to explain the bill are just stunning in his inability to really give clear answers to the questions. And it, it makes it difficult to sort of have this dialogue with the government and in the public because all of these things we're talking about, the concerns about the bill, the way it could regulate all user-generated content, the amount of power it could give to the CRTC, they largely just kind of say, no, nah, it won't, <laughs> you know? And it's very difficult to have a clear conversation about how they envision this process going because we just get a lot of vague assurances that it won't be an issue uh, without any real discussion of of why why we should believe that. I don't know, does that sound right to you, Matt? Absolutely, and I, I think I can strengthen what I said. It's not just that I don't think the government could accurately describe Bill C-10. I don't think they would accurately describe Bill C-10. Um, <laughs> we, we saw them intentionally misrepresent what was in it, uh, unfortunately, repeatedly during the rollout process. And uh, the one of the distinctions that they intentionally misled people around um, is... For a long time, they were saying, oh, no, uh, users are still excluded from the regulation of Bill C-10 um, because there is an exception there that says that they're not legally liable to be called in front of the CRTC. They're, they're not responsible or, or they're not going to be regulated as individuals, um, but they were still subject to their posts being regulated. And so, you know, the, the, the thing that I always said is it's, it's like, I'm not going to censor you. I'm only censoring your speech. I mean, that's not a very meaningful distinction. It's one you can draw and it's one they chose to draw. Uh, but I, obviously pretty unsatisfying for free expression groups like us. Um, they did uh, 
gradually reintroduce some amendments to Bill C-10. Uh, and it's, it's a little bit unclear uh, what the Senate would do with it if the Senate does continue consideration. Um, they might reform it further. Uh, but it, it, to my understanding, continues to regulate user speech, um, particularly around discoverability, where um, they're very concerned with having the ability to tell platforms they need to make Canadian content defined in whatever way they end up defining Canadian content, we don't know, um, make that appear more in people's feeds and implicitly make other content appear less in people's feeds. You know, the way a feed works, it's not like you just get to add things. You're taking things out when you do that. Um, so there's a lot of questions about how that would work, um, how you can really judge something to be Canadian on the internet. I think, I'm sure you folk, knowing how people game any system, I'm sure there'd be a lot of uh, sort of uh, can washing of stuff, um, taking other content and putting it through a Canadian filter in order to push it up in the algorithm, if this is something the government actually did. Um, but we, we don't yet know exactly how that would look. Yeah, I mean, you can sort of imagine the mostly benign version of it where it's like, oh, Netflix has to have a Canadian section on their front page when you log in and are looking at all the different lists. But you can also imagine the way these regulations, which, again, are very up in the air and, and left largely up to the CRTC to determine the specifics of, could infiltrate all of the algorithms for discoverability and recommendation and, and all of that in the way that Canadians consume media. I think also just to pause briefly and make sure everyone has some context, Bill C-10 was pushed pretty vigorously through the House of Commons in Canada, and it was passed there, and then it sort of died in the Senate, or, you know, died-ish, because now, you know, had, had there not been an election, the Senate would be coming back in September and possibly reviving the bill, but uh, because there is, that's sort of all on hold until we find out what the next legislative session will be. And and just just so I understand, because I don't I don't know enough about sort of the parliamentary process here. But uh, with a new election, does that you know? I mean, in the U.S. you can't call an election like like you have in Canada. But um, you know, when we have the new elections, then you start a new session. So bills kind of have to be reintroduced and everything. Is that is that how it'll work in Canada also, or do the bills? Yeah carry over no so it would have to be a new newly introduced bill in both the house and and uh uh is it the senate sorry <laughs> yes that's right yeah in both the house and the senate house and then the senate um Got it. and the reason they rushed it through and and unfortunately trampled over quite a few democratic norms to do so we had uh we had parliamentarians uh voting on amendments that they weren't allowed to debate and weren't even hmm. allowed to read so folk who were watching uh, the proceedings could see what they were doing. It was really a, a grotesque low point for Canadian democracy. Um, but they, yeah. they went through all this haste because they uh, really thought that this would be a, a winner in terms of appearing to be defending Canadian French culture. Um, and Quebec is very important electorally in Canada. Um, but it's not really necessarily about the impact so much as the appearance. Yeah. And this is where, again, we may need to provide all the American listeners a little bit more context. We've talked about the liberals and the conservatives, which are the two largest parties in Canada. But we do have a parliamentary system in which, you know, the liberals do not have a majority government. So they require the support of other MPs in order to, you know, get things through. We have our NDP, the New Democratic Party, which is our somewhat further left. You could basically describe it as a social democratic party for shorthand. And then we also have the Bloc Québécois, which is the French language Quebec party that only uh, that only runs in the province of Quebec, but is very successful there and thus has like a role to play significantly in uh, in parliament as well. 
Um, so shifting a bit, um, there was this online harms discussion. This was more recent. Um, and this was, I guess, a technical paper that, that people expected to become legislation of some sort. Uh, and this was, um, you know, very much directed at, at the internet uh, and, and, you know, would have been a, a massive change in terms of how, how the internet actually worked in Canada. So Matt, do you want to give a little background on, on the online harms uh, effort? Sure. I mean, the first thing I'll say about it is uh, it probably wouldn't be a consultation. Uh, it's it's a public consultation currently. It wouldn't have been a public consultation if it weren't for all the backlash around Bill C-10. Um, we would likely just have gone straight to the legislative proposal phase. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you read the technical paper, it reads like legislation. It's not really asking the Canadian public to give their two cents. It's more saying... You know, the legislation should look like this. It should look like that. It's a description of a bill, in essence. Yeah. It feels um, like they had it ready to go and then decided, let's call it a technical paper and say we're still taking feedback <laughs> instead, basically. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Um, which, again, is a, a real disappointment in a democratic society because, uh, you know, as we always say, like, any legislation that touches our, our right to expression is the most sensitive legislation we can possibly be doing. Um, so there should be a very fulsome uh, public consultation around this, and, and we, we do need to debate some of these questions. Um, in terms of what's in the, in the technical paper, uh, it's, it's a complex multi-part piece, and we've taken a while to get our, our public-facing piece out around it. But uh, essentially the core of it is they would like online platforms to be much more aggressive in identifying and removing content within five types of content that are illegal in Canada. Um, so those five types are hate speech, uh, incitement to terrorism, incitement to violence, non-consensually shared sexual imagery, and sexual content involving children. So, as I said, that's all already illegal. Um, it's already prosecuted regularly by law enforcement in Canada, although not nearly as frequently as it ought to be. Um, and uh, the issue is less whether this content should be criminalized, it should. It, it's about what the specific proposals they have will do to the internet in terms of the sort of side consequences of the way they're approaching it. So some of what they're proposing resembles what's happened in Europe under NetzDG in, in Germany. Um, so there is a 24-hour takedown window that platforms need to respond to this content. Um, there is a requirement to proactively use algorithms to identify the content and take it down. Um, and there's quite harsh penalties if the platforms uh, don't act on this in the way the government thinks they ought to. So I think it's 3% of global revenue or $10 million, whichever is greater, can be uh, applied to them as fines. There's a digital safety commissioner who will overlook this whole system, um, somewhat similar to what Australia has done. Uh, and I think the, the piece that we didn't know was coming until we saw the technical paper, and, and is actually very alarming to us, is um, there's very intense uh, reporting to law enforcement requirements proposed in this paper. So um, depending upon uh, how they end up finalizing the bill, um, any of this polls uh, content under these five categories would be reported directly to the RCMP, uh, which is sort of kind of Canada's FBI, our, our primary federal law enforcement. Um, some types of content would also be reported directly to CSIS, which is our, our spy agency. Um, and Really, the, the core of the problem is they're creating uh, a lot of penalties for platforms that don't pull content that they think should be pulled, but there's no real penalty for pulling content uh, that turns out to be legal speech. So if, if I'm a platform, my incentive is very much to pull anything that looks at all questionable, and if, if it turns out that it's legal, that's fine. 
but uh, it's likely to lead to much, much more legal content being removed than illegal content, actually. And under this system, a lot of legal content being reported directly to law enforcement with no clarity whatsoever on what law enforcement would do with those reports once they have it. We, they don't have a requirement to delete records or, or store it in a particular way or anything. So really, we could sort of see a surveillance state being built around the lawful speech of many Canadians. Mm-hmm. And and for some context there, I mean, not that we'd trust that system in general, but the RCMP was also recently exposed uh, in the Clearview AI hack as being one of the agencies making use of Clearview's facial recognition technology and having basically lied to all government oversight about the fact that they were doing that, more or less. That's a bit of a simplification. But uh, and and then also, I would just add, you know, the the online harms proposal creates some extraordinary powers for the new regulators that it wants to establish the ability to inspect the premises of internet services, to demand they open up all their books to them, to hold all kinds of hearings and demand people come before them, and ultimately to order Canada-wide blocking of certain websites if they want to in a great firewall fashion. So just just truly extraordinary powers that were all kind of dropped in here as things they want to create a whole new regulatory structure for. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's incredible to me, and I had said this about the... The UK, what had started as online harms approach, and then they rebranded it the online safety <laughs> approach. Um, but but the the um, the method of the way that the system works is nearly identical to the way that the um, Chinese Great Firewall was originally implemented. It has since changed, but the original. Uh, Great Firewall was basically the government saying to various internet service providers, um, if you let any bad stuff through, you will be punished and we will give you sort of vague descriptions of what is bad, um, but, you know, not not very clear. And then, you know, so the incentive was to take down a lot more speech than necessary just to make sure, because if you make a mistake, you're punished massively and there's no punishment for overblocking. Um, and it's incredible to me that, you know, now Western democracies are, you know, exploring this very same approach, which we already have seen leads to massive overblocking and then adding in the surveillance component and the reporting component to it. Um, it's, it's really, really scary. So what, you know, uh, so they put out this technical paper, um, and obviously I know folks like you and, and, and others, you know, raise some alarms about this, but you know, what has the response been um, from those supporting this, this approach? Um, well, uh, so it does have some support in some sectors of civil society. Um, so particularly groups that work with marginalized groups and uh, groups that tend to attract the attention of internet trolls and hate speech folk. Um, some of those folk have come out in support of this bill. Um, we think it's a little short-sighted, and I think... One of our concerns is that uh, typically a lot of these surveillance and punitive tools that are created uh, are are justified by saying that they're about protecting victims and are then used to victimize and attack marginalized groups. So um, internet troll brigades are really good at weaponizing reporting systems, particularly systems that are very inflexible, as this one would be. So uh, I think there's good reason to think, based off history, that actually a lot of content posted by folk with marginalized identities will be reported and taken down under this system. Um, and uh, you know, Lee mentioned some of the RCMP's uh, negative recent history around Clearview. 
The RCMP also has a, a long history of, of uh, targeting and surveilling uh, legal environmental protest and indigenous protest in Canada. Um, I would expect that under this uh, bill, uh, quite a bit of content around those issues, and particularly in support of protest, might end up being tracked uh, or even taken down. Um, and the reason I say that is because incitement to violence under this bill specifically includes incitement to destruction of property as well as attacks on, on people. And, you know, any mass mobilization protest either has the potential or sometimes has a fringe element to destroy some property at some point. Um, if I were uh, a would-be surveilling law enforcement agency that, that wanted to target these groups anyway, I would be very happy to define that as, as a, a, applying under this bill and make sure that that, that kind of uh, protest activity was being reported to me. Yeah, and not only is it a matter of that content getting taken down, but it's, again, a matter of that being referred to law enforcement and the possibility of activists and organizers having the RCMP show up there, up at their door over a protest they were organizing and things like that. And when you link that back into the issues of the marginalized groups, some of which, yeah, have shown some support for this, a lot of the most powerful defense of those groups in Canada right now is coming from activists and organizers and from grassroots action. And, you know, they're, they're the people who are very likely to be targeted. Um, you know, we won't get into the whole situation of activism going on in Toronto right now, which I know a fair bit about or whatever, but, you know, there's a lot going on that is very all but certain to be targeted by this sort of system if it were to come into play. And I think, you know, Matt, you said something, I think it was you who said it on another group call we were on discussing this recently about, you know, it comes down to if you ask a lot of people, the average person, you know, are you happy with the internet and your experience there? They will broadly say, no, there's a lot I don't like about it because, you know, that's the, that's the situation. And so it's, it can sometimes be a little bit too easy to get people on board with the idea that this will be a good thing that will start fixing the things they don't like about the internet without really discussing the unintended consequences, the very real harms, the way these laws will be abused both by the government and by trolling groups and, and other things. And, you know, it, that and of course, that's something we're familiar with in the U.S. as well. Pe you know, there are problems online and people don't like them. And so it can be too easy to get to get people on board with this sort of heavy handed approach when you don't have them really thinking about what the other consequences will be. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, we are not saying that the Internet is perfect the way it is or that the government couldn't have a role in regulating it to be better. Um, we just released uh, our, our pro-Internet platform for this election. Uh, with a bunch of proposals that, for, that any party can take on uh, that are really about addressing some of these real harms, but doing so by empowering internet users and victims to make their own choices and get the support they need, rather than giving like a giant amount of power to a regulator or to law enforcement um, who we have reason to believe may not use that power in the best interest of, of ordinary people in Canada. Yeah, Matt, do you want to speak a bit more to the platform that Open Media put out? Because I do think it's very good and it covers a lot of good stuff. There's the whole section on internet access, which is its own whole thing of trying to improve our broadband situation. Maybe we don't need to focus on that, but the other portions of it, which are more linked to what we're talking about right now. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, we have three pillars, access, privacy and free expression. And in terms of privacy and free expression, I think it's just it's been really obvious how little the government is focusing on what the ordinary person in Canada actually would benefit from or, or would feel as an improvement of their internet experience, while selling this as being all about making the internet safe and uh, you know taking on big tech giants. The, internet, the government's going to come in and, and solve all these problems for you. But when you actually get into what they're proposing to do, it, it's rarely about uh, what, what you and I might actually benefit from. So 
I think the really signal example of that is that last year in November, the government introduced a major privacy reform bill that had a lot of problems. It, it needed to be improved greatly, um, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't moved forward at all. Uh, it's been more than a year, and it just they made no effort to pass it or, or improve it. And uh, it, it just makes obvious that uh, the bills that they choose to move forward are really more around their electoral ambitions and around their relationships with major industries in Canada rather than improving the rights of individual users. So some of the stuff that we, we put in our privacy platform, um, we're, we're very into, or sorry, our, our online uh, platform, we're very into getting uh, the, the rights to uh, informed consent for users built into the relationship with companies. Um, we'd like to make it, see the government make it easy to get the data that uh, a company has on you, to transfer it, to delete it, um, to correct it, uh, which our current legislation doesn't effectively support. Um, in terms of empowering users uh, around freedom of expression, um, we'd like to see online platforms be much more transparent with their, their users on how they uh, moderate content on their platforms. Uh, I personally think it's healthy for different platforms to have different moderation standards, um, but I would like to see them be ultra clear on what those standards are so that we as users can choose which platforms we want to participate in and which we don't. Um, and then I think there's, there's certainly a space for governments to force platforms to, to be better in providing support to their users who are harassed or who do have content put up um, that is about them, that is inappropriate. Uh, but that should be really about empowering the end user to make their own decisions uh, rather than uh, empowering law enforcement to do whatever they choose to do about it. Which I should be clear, in many cases will be nothing. I mean, law enforcement already does not respond to many, many reports they receive about uh, actions online. So rather than making the internet safe, uh, I think giving a massive pile of data to law enforcement is more giving them a broader pool to move within and prosecute the cases they, they want to and, and leave the others uh, exactly where they are today. Yeah, and, and it's frustrating too because I know Mike, like obviously we know there, you know, there can be issues with the way privacy regulation or transparency mandates and things are structured as well, but around that privacy bill, there actually was a very good conversation about that. There was a lot of very intelligent talking about the need to also balance that with making it possible for these internet services to exist, making it possible to you know use the data the way they need to, to provide these platforms for Canadians, while also creating a, a rights-based structure for, for Canadian users. Um, and, you know, it, it wasn't yet perfect. It had a long way to go, but it was a good conversation in stark contrast to the governmental conversation around something like C10, where it just feels messy and muddled and no one's being clear about what the stakes are. And yet, you know, the good conversation is not the one that moves forward or goes anywhere. And the messy, vague conversation is the one that they ram through uh, as quickly as they can. And, you know, that was very frustrating. Totally agree. There's not a huge number of organizations and academics that are focused on these issues in Canada, but uh, the way the government has approached this has sort of united us in a very frustrating way where everyone is annoyed, even though we might disagree amongst ourselves <laughs> about particular ways of taking these problems on, everyone is really frustrated by what they've actually done. And, and we can all pretty much all agree that this was not the way. Yeah. I mean, I, I think with the the privacy stuff is always tricky, and, I, and I've gone through this a bunch, you know, mostly with the, the sort of U.S. proposals that we've had on privacy and some of the laws that we've passed where, like, there's a lot of stuff in principle that, that you know, I agree with in terms of protecting privacy and giving more empowerment to the end users. But there's also stuff that, that you know, I, I worry about how it goes 
it works in effect. So like, um, you know, things about, um, you know, consent, right? Sounds good. And and in theory, like, I totally agree with it. But in practice, you know, what happens is you get these little, you know, annoying cookie warnings or whatever, which don't really do anything. And everybody's just annoyed and clicks through and it doesn't actually change anything in any relevant or important way. You know, so I, I you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I, we don't need to get into the specifics of that. But it is interesting, at least that it sounds like there was some good discussion on how that should work. And then, but but no actual movement. Um, whereas the actual movement was just on the things that were so destructive. I think what's interesting too is what you're pointing to is there's some problems that we can all see that actually we don't know how best to solve them yet. Yeah. Like I don't know, you don't know, governments don't know, academics don't know. And again, it's not that the government couldn't play a positive role around that um, in terms of funding research, funding best practices discussions, like bringing us all together at a table and trying to drive the conversation forward. But yeah. jumping in with both feet and saying, like, we're going to take maximum power and we'll figure out what we do later. <laughs> again, that, that, that is very much not the way to take on these kind of difficult issues. Yeah. And, you know, and then to bring in the freedom of expression side, obviously, as I think even most of the American listeners know, we have very different free speech protections in Canada than the U.S. in some ways, as most countries do. Um, you know, I, as someone who is directly benefited from America's First Amendment and, you know, very keenly aware of the advantages of, uh, of both versions in some ways. Um, but, you know, it, the stark lack of even discussion about it from the ruling government, the, from the Liberal Party, has been so concerning, the degree to which they don't mention that, you know, we do have a protected charter right to freedom of expression in this country, and it just often does not get mentioned as a part of these discussions at all, which is very concerning, obviously. And then, you know, we have the Conservative Party, the, you know, in the leading up to this coming election, they have tried to put some emphasis on that in their platform as the defenders of freedom of expression. But it's very undermined by some of the specific proposals on it. Michael Geist, who is one of the top sort of experts and analysts on this stuff here, uh, you know, he pointed out uh, on the one hand, they're talking about freedom of expression. On the other hand, they're proposing changes on the copyright side, which is another thing we cover at Tech Dirt a lot that would completely undermine that and hugely endanger the freedom of expression of Canadians in terms of of scaling back fair dealing, which is our version of fair use and, uh, you know, creating copyright issues. There's a link tax proposal coming into this as well, as we've seen all over the world many times with being required to uh, pay to post news clips on social media and things like that. So there's just, you know, it, it is a bit of a mess when it comes to freedom of expression. And it doesn't right now feel like anybody politically, they're either not even talking about it or they're paying lip service to it that doesn't feel very reassuring that they really understand the issues at play. Yeah. I mean, one of the things um, that strikes me and I've, I've mentioned this on, on other podcasts is, is how so many of these issues are really connected and, and interact with one another. And yet all of the policy discussions about them are siloed. Right. I mean, like even the even the, the, you know, the privacy bill impacts freedom of expression. Right. I mean, you you talked about, you know, right to being able to delete data on you, um, which, you know, again, like in principle, sounds like a really good idea. But then you also see implementations of that, like in the EU, which turn into the right to be forgotten, which then suddenly raises pretty big freedom of expression concept. And, and so like all of these things interact with each other and and the freedom of expression and privacy and competition and 
surveillance and all of these things, you know, you, you, you move one knob uh, and it impacts all of these other things. And, you know, I think the only, you know, that, that there should be a much broader discussion on how all of these things fit together. And yet, you know, for a variety of reasons, and some of this is structural, uh, you know, everyone sort of focuses in an silo, like, okay, we're going to solve, you know, this problem there, you know, we're going to solve, you know, content and, and Canadian content, or we're going to solve copyright, or we're going to solve privacy. And they don't, they don't recognize how these things all, all interact. And I, I don't know how you solve that, because that seems to be a problem basically everywhere with any, any sort of internet related proposal. Um, but it's, it, it's frustrating to me, at least. You know, to, to pick up on your theme of things being interconnected, I think one of the things the government has said repeatedly um, as they've been selling these legislative proposals is that they don't want to make anything illegal online uh, that isn't illegal offline. Uh, and yes. great, we agree. Uh, but the reality is the way they're proposing to do this will make a lot of things, uh, if not illegal, um, impossible or difficult to do online that are legal to do offline. And right. so I think we need to have a more serious discussion about how to translate some of these standards from offline spaces to online spaces, because, of course, we don't have this sort of perpetual panopticon surveillance state of what people are saying and doing in, in offline spaces. Um, so if we're, if we're trying to end up at a similar balance of freedom of expression versus other rights, uh, it needs to be a, a different kind of translation than, than what they're proposing here. And then, of course, there's the added layer on top of this that when you're talking about, um, you know, like with, with C10 or with the online harms, like these regulatory structures that give huge amounts of power over Internet platforms to regulators, then you just have that additional effect that we've talked about before, which is if it makes these platforms impossible to operate, well, they're powerful tools for free expression of Canadians. I mean, maybe it's not a perfect world that a few large companies are providing some of the most powerful tools for free expression, but it is the one we have and they're important tools that do important work and provide important platforms for speech. And so if you start, you know, limiting them and making it impossible for them to operate or, you know, creating the power to block them entirely in Canada or subjecting them to regulatory requirements. And, and we didn't even touch on the fact that the platforms are expected to pay for a whole bunch of this regulatory structure through fees as well. Um, you know, you, you end up, you can end up destroying those tools or, or having them, you know, either blocking them from Canadians or having them decide it's not worth it to operate and offer their platforms to Canadians. And, and that can have, you know, a huge impact on our, uh, if not our right to freedom of expression, then the actual power and ability to use that right. Yeah. And I, particularly um, in the States, but more broadly as well, like people are uncomfortable with the amount of power that platforms exert over expression um, and, and the rest of our lives, of course. And I, I feel that too. I, I agree with that. Um, but the question is, like, how will the proposals on the table address that? And our government in Canada is kind of selling these proposals as if it's taking on these big tech giants and reducing their power. And the reality is it's actually co-opting their power and sort of setting up a, a state platform nexus that will have even more power over our expression and our daily lives than the platforms themselves currently exercise. So I, I think um, Mike's written really eloquently elsewhere about um, uh, the need for more decentralized systems on the internet, um, which I think uh, is a really good idea. Um, but if government is looking to actually uh, reduce the amount of power that platforms have over our expression, they need to be looking at, at proposals like that, ways of, of um, just having more diverse uh, regulation of speech online. Um, and some people have put 
forward some interesting ideas as well about sort of separating the content moderation layer from the platform layer and having independent content moderation layers, which I think are worth exploring as well. There's a lot of good ideas out there that's just not what we're getting in terms of legislation, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and the fear, of course, is that some of these legislative proposals sort of lock in the model just now with, with a lot more, you know, government hands in, in the process. And I worry about what that means for sort of future innovation and the ability to do these sort of more decentralized things or, you know, separating out the layers and allowing for more competition at different layers. Anyways, um, we're, I know we're sort of running out of time here, but but just to wrap up the conversation, Matt, you know, what do you hope will be the discussion as we go into into this election in the next few weeks around internet policy are are you um, you know, hoping that that internet policy is a part of the the discussion, or are you hoping that it's just kind of ignored because people are focusing on something else for now? Um, you know, how, how how much do you want to see it be a part of of this election process? Well, I hope it isn't ignored because these are transformational proposals that are on the table. They could really reshape uh, what it's like to use the internet in Canada, uh, mostly for the worse. And so I think people do need to be talking about it. Um, we've been going through each party platform as they put them forward and assessing what's in there that's good or bad or problematic. And it's great to see that some parties are, are speaking out on parts of these issues. Um, but uh, it's, it's unfortunately remains just a, a really... Uh, what would I say, um, poorly informed discourse in, in, in public space around these issues. It's uh, the parties are kind of wrap, wrapping themselves in the Canadian flag. And uh, it's it's hard to be the party that's running against supporting Canadian content creators. Um, and so it's kind of like other par opposition parties have said, oh, we're going to do that, but even more so in many cases, um, rather than like actually being more serious about the trade-offs involved and what the consequences of the proposals would be. All right. Well, uh, thanks for for all the work that you've done uh, on this, and I and I know that you guys have have done amazing work up in Canada, and I'm I'm always you know following what what open media is working on, uh, and I'm sure you'll be busy over the next few weeks and then afterwards as as we start to see whatever new proposals come out. But but thanks so much for for all the work that you do, uh, and thanks for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Matt. This has been great. Our pleasure. Anytime. All right, and thanks to everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week. To grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and think of the tap.